trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table again and again Welcome to Grassroot Ohio Conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Justin Noble. Justin writes on issues of science and the environment for Rolling Stone and other U.S. magazines, investigative sites, and literary journals. His work has been published in Best American Travel Writing and Best American Science and Nature Writing. A book he co-wrote with the New Orleans death row exoneree the Story of Dan Bright was published in 2016 by the University of New Orleans Press. He is presently working on a book about oil and gas radioactivity to be published with Simon & Schuster and entitled Petroleum 238, Big Oil's Dangerous Secret and the Grassroots Fight to Stop It. His explosive hot-off-the-press Rolling Stone article, America's Radioactive Secret, is the culmination of 20 months research and interviews with oil and gas workers, regulatory agents, scientists, industry watchdogs, and local activists in Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Communities where fracking and the frack waste stream is pervasive and growing. Welcome, Justin. Karen, thank you so much for having me. Last Friday at The Ohio University Eastern in St. Clairsville, Ohio, you presented your findings along with environmental scientist Dr. Julie Weatherington-Rice. I noticed a lot of oil and gas workers in the audience. Your empathy towards them was palpable, and their openness was surprising. Can you tell our listeners what was your experience working with folks directly impacted by their work with the oil and gas industry? It's a great question. I have covered the oil and gas industry for some time, and often the workers are a very difficult group to gain access to. Um, there aren't necessarily unions in the oil and gas industry, so there aren't vocal spokespeople who immediately jump out uh, and are looking to talk. And uh, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners will recognize many environmental issues will be uh, split. A wedge is created between, quote, the environmentalists and the workers. Um, And and I think if we think about this, we know that's kind of ridiculous. Workers enjoy the environment. They live in the environment. They hunt and fish and go to parks. So clearly there's overlap between these groups, um, but we're led to believe there's not. And what was so powerful in this story is that the workers really were the ones, and they are the ones, being most effective, and they actually are speaking out. Uh, And that took a lot of reporting effort to get to workers. Um, Again, there's no spokesperson there, so they're not going to jump right out, but by spending a lot of time in different communities in Ohio, in West Virginia, in Pennsylvania, I was eventually able to connect to community members who knew a lot of these workers. A lot of truck drivers, for example, brine haulers in the industry, they went to high school, of course, with folks uh, from towns like Barnesville. So by connecting with community members, spending time with them, um, I was led to what essentially are, you know, friends and and friends of friends of some of these people. And and these workers were very interested to talk to me 
and they had concerns, and I, that was one of the reasons I think they reached out to me. They have not been able to get answers from their own industry, from the regulators. Um, they're left wondering, confused, and scared, and, and finally here is someone coming along who's, who's at least digging into this in a systematic way. Right, and not shaming them or trying to, you know, make them feel bad for the choices they've made to work in the industry, which a lot of activism folks are frustrated and so um, I feel like you really had an open channel with these folks. Yeah, I- I- exactly. This is not about trying to say, um, you know, keep it in the ground, shut the- these jobs. Not about that at all. This is, in fact, about just looking at what the jobs are. Let's actually look at oil and gas work, which I know because I deal with editors back in places like New York City and um folks actually have very little conception of what it's like to work at a wellhead or in this industry. You know, the, the general conception is like, there's a well and the oil fountains out and, I don't know, we collect it in trucks or buckets and carry it off to the refinery. Well, there's a lot of really sloppy, messy, dangerous jobs in between. Um, and this reporting has revealed that there's risks connected to radioactivity to many of those jobs. What are some um, of the jobs? Sorry, what are some of the jobs of um, the workers that you that you actually talked with and interviewed? The main group that came forward to me in the story is the brine haulers, and these are folks who are driving trucks. The trucks look pretty innocent; they look like septic trucks, um, a kind of tight cylindrical barrel. It's about a 5,000-gallon tank on the back of the truck. There's often a little sign that says brine or water or residual waste. Um, But this truck is carrying brine, and the brine can often have quite a bit of radioactivity to it. Um, There's another set of jobs. I would call these, quote, treatment jobs. So these are workers working at different plants and facilities that are either trying to remove the solids and sludge from the brine. Uh, And again, that's exactly where you'd have these radioactive materials. They would settle out in the solids or sludge. Um, Or they're trying to do a process called down blending, which is literally taking sludge or drill cuttings, which have a known radioactive signature, and they're trying to lower that radioactive signature so that material can be accepted at local landfills, uh, which often will have some sort of radioactivity threshold. All of those jobs, uh, those treatment jobs, those down-blending jobs, those are really dangerous jobs when it comes to radioactivity exposure. And did you find that a lot of these workers did not have much knowledge or even any indication that it was their work was, uh, the products they were dealing with were radioactive? Correct. So the, the brine haulers often the first time that they'll even learn that the brine they're hauling is radioactive is when they happen to pull their truck up to one of the injection wells or treatment plants where there is a Geiger counter and someone might uh, walk around the truck and say, hey, your your load is hot today. And, and the driver will be like, well, hot, what do you mean? I didn't know I was taking radioactive material. Um, and and so, yeah, they're, they're unaware, which means they're not protected. They're not wearing appropriate clothing. They're not given appropriate training to know very basic things, you know, such as uh, you don't want to breathe in dust when you're in this environment because that is an even worse form of exposure. 
furthermore, the treatment plant workers who works at these facilities that are downblending, I spoke to a number of different operators of those sites, and it's um, they're good people. I mean, they're excited about these jobs. This is a booming industry. Many of them have come from other places to do this type of work, uh, coming from, say, Texas or Oklahoma to Ohio. Um, they like being in Ohio. They're really enjoying the job and the money, but they do not have training on radioactivity. Uh, and, and it's really shocking how little knowledge they have. And OSHA doesn't require that they have radioactive um, protection, hazmat um, clothing, and, you know, regulations? Right. Oh, yeah. OSHA does not. I, I was in touch at length with OSHA, or I tried to be in touch with OSHA, and would get very minimal replies from them. Um, but from the replies I, I have received, it, no, it does not seem that there are OSHA requirements that would require a dosimeter, which would be measuring at least some types of radioactivity or a respirator for these types of jobs. Now, the state of Ohio does tell me that they have a radiation protection plan, which would be in place for these sites. And if you look at the rules of this radiation protection plan, they're, they're actually quite um, strict. You know, workers would have to wear appropriate equipment. But when the state, on the few occasions that I have evidence of where they've went in and assessed these radiation protection plans, um, the companies have just completely failed. I mean, there's one report we mentioned in the article, and, and they go through this checklist at this site. You know, are workers knowledgeable? Um, do they have separate locations in the facility for highly radioactive waste? versus less radioactive waste, and the company failed on pretty much every point. They had a Geiger counter that apparently had never even been used, um, and, they, and there's one question that's really informative. You know, do workers have knowledge about a radiation protection plan? Um, and, and they couldn't even answer that question because they had, they had no knowledge about such a plan existing. So there's regulation, but there's no enforcement. I think that's the appropriate way to describe it, yes. The companies are self-enforcing or supposed to be self-regulating? Right. So there's a couple different um, things going on. One is instances where there is regulation, but it, it does not appear that it's being appropriately enforced. And then there are situations, um, as we pointed out with some of the Department of Transportation rules, where the regulators actually do rely on self-reporting, and that certainly is an issue, too. So let's talk about this radioactivity. Um, I'm going to quote from your article. Essentially, what you are doing is taking an underground radioactive reservoir and bringing it to the surface where it can interact with people and the environment, says Marco Kaltofen, a nuclear forensics scientist at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. So what is this radioactive element in the shale that is worrisome or dangerous? So, right. Um, the radioactive element that often is coming to the surface is radium. Uh, radium is a really worrisome radioactive element. It's what uh, Marie Curie worked with uh, over 100 years ago. Um, and it has this ability, unlike many other radioactive elements that are down in the earth, to flow with water. Um, so while there's various naturally occurring radioactive elements in the earth, radium will actually concentrate in the brine. 
uh, and some oil and gas plays don't have a lot of radium, but some oil and gas plays have quite a bit of radium, and it turns out that the Marcellus has extraordinarily high levels of radium. Um, from the numbers we have of the Utica and even conventional wells in Ohio, they have high radium levels as well. Um, how did the radium get there is a more difficult question, but uh, one thing we do know is that black shales have a high radioactive signature, so that would be the Utica and the Marcellus, and that is because these layers have literally embedded within them two very long-lived radioactive elements, uranium-238 and thorium-232, and radium is what's called a daughter product. Um, uh, there's an isotope of radium that's a daughter of uranium-238, and another isotope of radium is a daughter of thorium-232. That sounds very confusing, but basically, if you think of any radioactive element, it's slowly going to be breaking down. And when it breaks down, it shoots off little pieces of itself. That's the radiation. That's really dangerous. You don't want to be near that. And after it shoots off a piece of itself, it is now a little bit less, and it's a new element, uh, and then the cycle continues until it eventually becomes stable. So what are the impacts of exposure to radium? Um, I know that we have radon in Ohio, and it's probably related, um, but what are the physical impacts to these workers and community members that might um, drink this or breathe it in? As I understand, it's more ingest it's an ingested or breathed in um how that's how it can get into your body right so so radium will flow with water that makes it dangerous because it can flow to the surface that makes it worrisome but it also um will hitch on to clay particles it will connect essentially to dust particles and so if you're in an environment say where you're processing you're trying to treat this brine um, and you've settled out some sludge, and there's radium there, the radium could attach to something solid. Um, if it dries out a little bit, it could then, you know, be blown up into the air. Um, say it's at a landfill, it could be easily blown up into the air and, and blown downwind. Um, or if you're in a room where these workers are often in a big warehouse-type setting, you know, that could be a dusty environment, and you could breathe it in. So radium emits what's called an alpha particle, and, and there's a a misconception, people see, oh, well, paper blocks alpha, my skin blocks alpha. Alpha isn't to be worried about, but it's actually even scarier than what's called a gamma ray. It's another type of radiation. People will see gamma ray goes through steel, um, and wow, that's the one to worry about. Well, if you think about it, if it goes through steel, that basically that means a gamma ray can go through steel without touching any of the particles and it shoots out the other side, and it can also go through your body without really touching anything, and, and you'll escape um, you know, at least in some cases, un unscathed. But alpha, although it can be blocked by skin, that's just because it's so big. It's such a big, fat particle. It can be blocked by skin. Um, can't get through your skin. That's fine. But if you accidentally breathe it in, if you accidentally ingest it, which is very easy, if you have a dusty environment and radium hitched onto dust, you don't even know you're breathing in dust, you then bring radium into the soft inner core of your body, and that part of your body has no defense against the alpha particles that radium will blast out. Um, and radium will also accumulate in your bone. It's what's known as a bone seeker. That's because radium has a similar makeup as calcium. So your body will literally incorporate 
radium, this radioactive element, into your bones thinking it's doing a good thing, um, but it's a terrible thing. You now have a radioactive element incorporated into your skeleton, and it will be blasting out radiation um, literally for thousands of years. Let me just give a station ID. It's Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio, and I'm talking with Justin Noble. And he just, um, he's got a, a, a magazine article out in Rolling Stone magazine called America's Radioactive Secret. And he did a lot of research and um, with um, folks in eastern Ohio that are directly impacted by the oil and gas in- industry, and particularly in with its waste, the radioactive waste that a lot of folks aren't, aware of or it's running um it's, they're, it's under the radar for most folks and and particularly those working in the industry um what are how are workers and community members being exposed to this radioactive um elements they're brine haulers spreaders um and they actually use this brine um to spread on the roads um for dust and also for um ice is that correct yeah, unfortunately, that is correct. Um, so, yeah, let me start with the first and get to the really frightening second part of the okay. question. Okay. Um, they're being exposed uh, in in many situations, in many cases, simply because this brine has received a glaring exemption going back to uh, the late 1970s and early 1980s. So oil and gas waste, such as brine, should really be labeled as hazardous. It has radioactivity, it has toxic heavy metals, um, but oil and gas waste received an exemption that declared that even though it has hazardous properties, it is non-hazardous. So that means that it can go in an unmarked truck. It can go to, um, you know, uh, an injection well um, or a landfill meant for household garbage. It does not have to go to these specialized hazardous waste facilities because technically it's not hazardous. That means it's put in front of the public's um, way all the time, and that's really the problem here. So if a brine truck were labeled hazardous, it would not be able to drive next to a school. It would not be able to drive next to a reservoir. I know in Barnesville, Ohio, a brine truck flipped over right next to a reservoir, and brine literally ended up in a reservoir. I mean, that would not happen if these trucks were appropriately labeled. And so I think this is just such an important point to make. You know, there is a a regulatory pathway to protect people. That pathway has not been taken, and therefore um, anyone living along the path uh, that brine trucks take, which I know is many people in Ohio, uh, in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, um, they are at risk. And even drivers congregating in places, say a diner, you know, they're bringing whatever is on their clothes into that enclosed space of a diner. The family's washing the clothes at home. Um, that is an appropriate risk. And we bring up examples from other states in our story, Louisiana, for example, where workers' clothes have been found to be radioactive, and they've traced the radioactivity literally all the way into the living room where there was a baby crawling around on the living room carpet. And it's just devastating. Because I'm curious, too, like when you're driving on the freeway, you know, if you don't have that recycle um, button on in your car, um, th- the air from the road will come up into the hu- into your car. And I'm wondering if you can get those radioactive dust particles into your car while you're driving. Yes, I, the, the answer is yes. 
and it's something the drivers themselves had told me because they, if you look along the side of a brine truck, they have hoses that they will use to connect a tank filled with brine and put the brine into their truck. And those hoses are simply coiled on the side and they're, you know, wet. And sometimes even the, the bottom part of the truck, this little tray where, um, where any kind of drip collects when they fill up their trucks, that can even have a little bit of liquid. So yeah, this stuff is on the outside of the truck. It's on the undercarriage of the truck. It may be on the tires of the truck. It's a valid concern. How much of a dosage would you be getting in the car? It would be pretty low, but you would, you know, um, you would be getting potentially if you turn on your vent um, particles. And that's something I think me and others, as we start to learn about this, uh, yeah, you get to this fearful state where you, you know, try to put the air on recycle within the car because you don't want to be breathing what's coming off of that truck. But, but not um, just the truck, up. Justin. I'm thinking about the application after application of the dust, um, you know, settler or the ice um, um, brine. That that dries up and becomes dust. And it's some some roads are, you know, uh, have brine spread on them repeatedly, repeatedly. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's focus on that issue. And this, Carolyn, uh, this is just. This is just devastating. As I was getting in touch with experts in other locations and, and a lot of really great radioactivity experts, they didn't necessarily know how bad things were in the Marcellus and Utica. Um, and when I conveyed, they were truly shocked. But what really uh, just completely put them at a loss was this idea of brine spreading, that you would take brine, which has a known high radium signature, especially in the Utica and Marcellus area. It doesn't matter if it's conventional oil and gas still can have a high radium signature, but you would intentionally put that on the roads. And uh, and even further, you would put it on dusty roads when we know that radium will hitch to clay and, and blow up with the dust. So, wow. I mean, you've created, as one of the experts in the story points out, you've created um, a pathway to just bring this radioactivity right into the public's lungs. Yeah. It, it's insane. And the fact that the legislature in Ohio is even debating this bill uh, they're trying to get Brian back on the road. I mean, this needs to be stopped immediately, and it is definitely one of the most important points of the story. There's risk in many areas, but in this case, this is a, a instance where the risk is being brought somehow intentionally right into the public sphere, um, and, and it's a legitimate concern. If you put brine with radium on the road, it's a dusty road. There's been studies that actually show brine does not, for the first um, point, you know, it does not make the roads uh, less dusty. It can actually make them more dusty. And furthermore, the radiation experts I'm in touch with have conveyed to me that radium could be in that dust. So th- this is a really serious issue. And folks like to um, say, oh, but this is conventional um, brine. It's not fractal brine. But, but you're saying that um, no matter either one, the brine is, from, you know, is radioactive. Correct. That is correct, and ODNR's own data has actually confirmed that. And uh, I know the Buckeye Environmental Network and uh, has created with other groups, with uh, people like Julie Weatherington-Rice and Youngstown Fire Chief So Cagiano, a brine-spreading task force. That brine-spreading task force was able to get this data from ODNR. ODNR has been looking at brine. Uh, we didn't know this, but they've been looking at it for a couple years now, and their own numbers show that conventional brine um, 
can, in many cases, actually have more radioactivity than unconventional brine. And just to focus, okay, well, how much more? What are the numbers? EPA safe drinking water limit for radium is five. It's in a unit called pico carries per liter. So we just remember five. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has an industrial discharge limit, two different types of radium. If you add them together, it's 120. So we have five, we have 120. Those are our limits. And ODNR's own figures show that conventional brine in Ohio can be higher than 9,000. That's extraordinary. And they're trying to mod- uh, uh, commodify it. Um, there is actually a, a product in the hardware store selling brine as, you know, as, ice, as a de-icer, correct? The, the product has definitely been sold in hardware stores, but um, from as far as we can tell now, the product is not being sold anymore. The purveyor of the product has conveyed to me that it's not being sold in hardware stores uh, any longer, but it absolutely still is being used in Ohio. Uh, and I think... Um, Biodot? I, I'm not aware... Biodot? What's that? By Ohio Department of Transportation, I mean, or by the yeah, brine trucks? It's been, yeah, it, yeah, it's been used by Ohio Department of Transportation, which is concerning. It's also been used on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which is concerning. Um, and what's really worrisome is there's uh, a network of, of middle people who, are, um, who, who connect with folks such as um, Duck Creek Energy, who produces Aquasalina, and can take their brine and then um, potentially mix it with other products and, and then resell it to places far away. Now, I've been told that it's hard to get Aquasalina too far from Ohio because it's heavy and it'd be a lot of money, but essentially we don't really know how far this product has been carried. It's certainly been used in Ohio, it's been used by ODOT, and it's also been used by a number of local townships. And the best way to learn if your township or county or area is using this, you've just got to call your local supervisor, your local county officials, and ask them straight up, are you using this product? Because it is often their decision um, on whether or not to use the product. So people should call their um, their township or county. Um, which department is it again? What, who would know this? Uh, so I think a, a township supervisor, but it's often the road maintenance division that mm-hmm. makes this decision. You know, this is a decision... Um, that is coming from that specific sector of uh, a local government body. I, there's one more thing I do want to ask. Is It's about injection wells because um, I'm in central Ohio, Columbus. There's not a lot of frack wells in this area um, drilling, but there's a lot of injection wells taking this brine. And um, and we're, we're not taking as much as they are in Athens County, Washington County, Trumbull County, they're being barraged with this frack waste, but we know earthquakes and also leaks can get into watersheds and water supplies. Um, what's your take on these injection wells? It's so worrisome. Uh, and this is the reason why, again, an injection well gives it a nice little name, um, and you think that it's an organized process. But uh, this is a space where you have a very hazardous material. It has, again, toxic heavy metals, radioactivity, and and there's also volatile organics. There's hydrocarbon-related materials like benzene, a known carcinogen. These things are being, you know, processed in a tank and then injected back into the earth. I mean, this is a hazardous waste facility. What's happening there 
is a very hazardous industrial process. So sure, there's a way where it could probably be done appropriately, but you know, have you ever seen a, a hazardous uh, sign or placard by an injection well? Have you ever seen a radioactivity sign? Um, no, I never have either. We, and, and so these workers and the companies operating them, they are not operating these injection wells as if they were something dangerous, as if they were, you know, containing the radioactive materials that they truly are. And so it's a really, it's a cavalier operation. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a lemonade stand type mentality when this thing really should be regulated, such as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulates their facilities. And that's the problem. They're sited right in the middle of communities. And that should never happen. They should not be in shopping centers, such as you have one, literally in a shopping center next to a Verizon hey, across Justin? the street from a Burger King. Justin, we've got to wrap it up. I've got to wrap it up, but I want to encourage folks to um, look at Rolling Stones magazine and look for your for your article, which is called America's Radioactive Secret by Justin Noble. Thank you so much for your work and for getting this word out. Yes, Carolyn, really great to talk. Thank you. All right, we'll talk later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back.